Welcome to Making Waves, a show about sound art, produced by New Adventures in Sound Art. On today's show, we'll share part of two pieces from the Deep Wireless 17 Radio Art album, and we'll talk to the artists who made the pieces. Later in the show, we'll hear from Prachi Kendakar about her piece, The Tracker. But to begin, let's listen to Goodwin, along with Face Mason, who produced Inner Spaces, live from quarantine. Inner Spaces is born of a parallel world to ours. It is the voice of revolution in a society gone mad, the voice of hope for the hopeless. Here's a short excerpt. from Inner Spaces, live from Quarantine, by Goodwin and Face Mason. Here's my uh, conversation that I had about this piece with one of its creators, Nicole Goodwin. Your piece is very much, uh, you know, as, uh, as rooted in the experience of the pandemic lockdowns as one could imagine. Um, and uh, what, what drove you to, to make this piece, which is very hard-hitting and very direct and what was the impulse that gave you that that got you on that path um what drove me to make the piece was the necessity to reach out to people um the need to connect and uh just to form human connection covid was really difficult for New York City, um, it just brought us to a standstill. And I um, I wanted to 
establish a connection that was genuine. And um, it really reminded me of the fireside chats that Roosevelt used to do and um, during the depression. And um, I wanted the listener to feel comforted by my voice. And I wanted to feel comforted that people were listening. So it was just a way, um, um, it mimicked analog. So it was a basic way to reach out, reach out to people. Yeah, it sounds like a, a phone connection or something or a dictaphone even. Yeah. Or a CB radio. Right, right. Yeah, it has to click in between the segments. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that that for you, I think I think it also, I suppose, um, underscores the, you know, people kind of grabbing whatever means they could to express themselves during that time. Self-expression is very important to me. And um, I believe in what Michael and I have done together. Mm -hmm. Does the piece uh, differ from quite uh, significantly from other things that you've done? Um, I'm an interdisciplinary artist, so the piece um, is a portion of a compilation in sound art. I did another. Um, I did another uh, collection about a friend, Drake Logan, and they are death by suicide, and it was a memorial celebrating their life, but also bringing attention to the pain and loss that comes with that type of um, choice. And living in quarantine as a whole collection is a, a love letter to definitely to the people of New York City. And I try to I try to show that we are one people. So you felt that you were in a sense speaking for people you knew and the people you encountered during that time. Um I don't think I was just speaking for them. I think I was calling attention to their resilience. Uh, the case in point, and it spread globally. The, the resilience, the human connection. I saw videos of, um, you wouldn't believe it to be connected, but how in Italy they would uh, serenade each other from the windows. They did a similar thing in Brooklyn with um, the song Juicy Fruit or Juicy rather, right. <laughs> I keep messing up the song, by um, Biggie Smalls. And it was in a project and it was just this harmony of people. And there were people clanging pots and 
you know, my um, Michael, he's a first responder at his uh, his nine to five. And I wanted to celebrate the resilience of the human spirit. Looking back at the piece now, it's been, I guess, a couple of years. Um, uh, your attitudes or feelings about it have changed at all uh, as the as things have unfolded. For me, I have my ups and downs, but I want people to know that hope is a powerful, powerful um, antidote to despair. And my work is made in the face of that. And um, I'm working on some new um, uh, inner spaces projects. So that center around resistance and just because COVID isn't gone and these issues around COVID are not gone. And um, I want the people to know that there is a light inside of us all. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could explain a little bit about your inner spaces project and how that, I guess that's more than just this particular piece. It's uh, other other collections of stories uh, of uh, writing as well. Yeah. So um, basically it's a collection of poems and uh, how would you say it? It's a dialogue. Like I said, it's similar to the fireside chats that Roosevelt used to have over the radio and to give people the strength to continue. And I wanted to do it through a CB radio because I wanted the transmission to be um, authentic. And this person that I'm speaking, that's speaking through me in inner spaces is one that has had to be underground to fight the good fight. And I think just the voice alone, the conviction, the dedication. What's, uh, what's interesting to me is that it's writing that is uh, made to be heard. Uh, it's a, yeah. as opposed to a, a visual text or a book. Um, is that unique to this, to inner spaces, or is that uh, a characteristic of, of a lot of your writing? It's a characteristic of a lot of my writing, but it's unique to inner spaces because it's, it's me on a mountain as well as underground fighting the good fight. It's as a large black woman who is queer, um, we are fighting a lot of forces in the United States that are against us. And 
against what I believe is collective humanity and collective growth. And it's me on the mountaintop shouting, don't go into the darkness, kick and scream, um, find any way to find joy in your life. That's a radical act. So it's the same theme with variations. It's also, it's also a signature of spirituality. Um, I have studied about religions and in, different, in a myriad of ways and the effects of religion um, through anthropology. And um, I find that even the teachers, teachings of Jesus and Buddha and all these amazing um, figures in history and folklore and mysticism and legend can give people hope, but very rarely do they focus on the hearts of women and femmes. And I want to bring that to light as well. So it is, it's a, it's a, it's an iconoclast. And, and I think uh, speaking it out loud is, seems critical to that, to that objective. Yes, who I am. Mm -hmm. It's critical. It's critical to. It's critical to my identity as a human being. I find that inner spaces is catharsis and uh, relief. It gives me a sense of hope as well to hear the sound of my own voice coming back at me and saying. You have purpose and you're special and are worthy. So I encourage people to find ways to embrace that light in themselves and share it with others. Use of the CB, was that also a connection to Michael's role as a first first responder? Yeah, I think just connecting to Michael's story um, through, it's a collaboration. So just the idea of, he's very particular and meticulous about sound. And I am meticulous about um, verbiage. So we kind of came together to craft this alternate parallel parallel universe, but that is exactly like ours, but different. I never understood why you would pick and choose to create art whenever you felt like it. This inconsistency behind thoughts for me, art is more than a hobby. It's the core of expression of so many stories to tell, and everyone has a story to tell. Why do we wait for others to tell it? I don't need secondhand accounts or reruns. 
What I need is your voice, an authentic narrative with a moment of truth that ends with a relieving sigh. This can only come from your soul. How much weight will you be forced to carry in this existence? Behind those eyes, there must be so many thoughts. In transmission. One, I don't feel like saying hello today to the people I know on Facebook. This is nothing against them or the platform. It's just that I'm beginning to hate the sound of my voice as I type in the words that don't seem to matter to me anymore. Hello? How are you? Are you still there? Are you still around? Still alive? Still here? I wonder this every time I click the keys or mouth the words or just breathe. Be calm. Be calm. But I don't want to be calm. I want to be angry. I want to hit the walls and knock them down. I want to scream. I want to shout. I want out. Let me out. Of what, though? I keep hearing it's the same everywhere. I talk to my friend Bo almost every day. We scream and make each other laugh. I secretly wonder who the new normal will drive insane first, him or I. I place all bets on me. See, I've been there before, and there's no reason not to go again. Or are there reasons not to go insane, and I'm ignoring them again? The city is awful quiet, except for the sirens. And I'm tired of sirens and waiting on lines just to wait on lines to buy food. Again, this is the cycle that poverty shows, at least to some of us. The rest that fall through the cracks, well, they're just forgotten about. Except I keep thinking about them. The little old Asian lady that wanders through the garbage bins on the block. Cutting up the blue garbage bags for cans to recycle or anything that they can hustle. How I miss her face. Just her face as she was always small and always busy murmuring in some language that I couldn't quite hear. So I never understood her. Not once. So why do I think of her? I don't really know. I don't really know why I wonder if she is alive, but I do. I worry if I will ever see her again. Three. I saw an article in the paper about anti-African sentiments in China. 
how it's killing them in the time of COVID. And when I look up at the sky, I wonder so intensely, how long did it take Nero to set you on fire? And transmission. We turn to art with a dire need to tell stories of our lives. Art is and always will be about survival to me. It's been the outlet that I've always been in love with. But nearing 40 years old, I had time to question my relationship with art, especially during COVID. I look back on my career, my passion, my dedication and drive and what type of person it's made me. I look back on my life before this moment, realizing that I took the long way here. Art isn't a game that everyone can play, and it took me a long time to accept that. No matter what, art will always be considered a young person's game. But knowing that, I will still build my place in it. Besides the levels of discrimination that exist, racial, economic, sexual, historical, and of course, anything regarding accessibility, I have to wonder, does art really love me like that? But no matter what, I still make art because I still care for the living and transmission. To all my friends lost out in quarantine land, I promise I will call you and call you and call until you or I are at our wit's end and you pick up the phone. I will call and call and call to see how you are and hope that you will be sick of me enough to answer. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm still here. Please do not get sick of my voice and this horse. Please, if you cannot pick up, I understand that there are hard times for us all. I just want you to know that I am missing you like madness and holding you up from afar. May we meet again on the road past sickness and the valley of otherness and otherwise in transmission. You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC Wavefarm. That was Inner Spaces Live from Quarantine by Goodwin and Face Mason. And prior to that, we heard my conversation with Nicole Goodwin. Next, we're going to listen to an excerpt from The Tracker by Prachi Kandekar. The Tracker is part of an online media piece by her called Circuits of Sand and Water. This binaural audio production tells a story about a woman battling isolation during the pandemic. She starts watching her neighbors from her window. Soon, she's compelled to get closer and hacks into their devices. It explores what it feels like to balance an animal urge for connection 
with the mechanical logic of progress. The voice you hear is by Lenny Parker, and the sound design is by Julia Dick. Bodies carry themselves with a certain ease inside their home, sheltered in enclaves, yet inches from strangers. Strangers who used to tilt their heads for one last sip. Strangers who gathered coats and walked out of Cafe Agora as the day folded, leaving behind the building's residence curled up in glass on the floor above. No strangers can be seen in Agora these days. Only yellow flora and upturned chairs. A wistful display of the social destitution brought on by a virus. Robbed of murmuring crowds of intimacy of new familiar faces. All we could do now was step out for walks. Then return to windows in walls or windows on screens. Caged in with our beating bodies. I grew used to the view of downtown to the north. A patchwork of public and private, stretching into the horizon. Receding sunlight glints on the surface every evening. To mark this special time of day. Blink and the city morphs into shadow theater, holding backlit shapes within. It was on one of those early, uncertain days that I happened to turn from that customary view. I walked to the other window and spotted three figures across the street. They were puttering around in varying states of undress, unaware of their performance in neighboring light boxes. A new ritual took root inside me, spurred by a visible trio in a city of silhouettes. Dusk reveals tender scenes in new frames, a setting that takes me back to watching ants as a child. I used to crouch low to take in their scuttle, frozen in fascination as trails carved themselves in dust. My preteen stature, too short for delicacies kept out of reach, was large enough to cast an impressive shadow. A charge ran wild inside me, closing circuit as my contour slanted over an entire colony. This whisper of grandness so early in life left its mark. Watching ants stamped a strange comfort onto my child mind. I found ways to stay suspended in that zone, drowning out chaos with my fixed gaze, the blaring traffic, my parents' unhappy romance, any portable quarrel muted when I honed in. And so, I became a hobby gazer, peeking from corners to perfect my craft on unsuspecting animals, cashiers, mailmen. I studied other gazers at work. They didn't need to hide because they were bestowed with trust. The friendly concierge who monitored hallways at night, nannies who eyed toddlers inching towards the shoreline, teachers who held their breath as we cut out jagged holes. The languid pleasure of watching is granted without question to few 
benevolent eyes. An hour past sundown, all movement has died. My neighbors sit still for the circle of my telescope to do its work. It's time to study them closer. With lights dimmed, I hover over torsos and crop out surroundings. I note the softness of postures at rest, zooming in on details. Tattoos, chin hair, fingertips, collarbones, their features awash in the cool light of devices. It's the usual game of tag we play every night. I make my way into their nests from the darkness of my flat, and they elude me by squinting into tight portals of light. I flutter between flats as they stay put like objects. They remind me of a still life composition, painting in the intangible spirit of our time. Like an orange goblet or vase arranged on fabric, they pin down the wispy image of this era, an age electrified by technology in which we exist together in anonymous frames. Still life paintings are also called nature mort, dead nature, as if by capturing an impression, we unwittingly drain any sign of life budding within. Was my gaze doing the same? flattening these people into representations, hollow and dead. Snow piles into soft forms and melts into uneven rain. I have not wavered, binge watching content that refreshes in seven foot tall windows. There are no crescendos, no cliffhangers. Yet somehow, the narrative propels itself. Even if I manage to get away, the action never stops. I walk past those windows again and again, fighting the swivel of my own head. Their refusal to use curtains only fans my yearning. Real life is nothing like what's shown on television. The actors before me are quite ordinary, they smile into the air when days are good and stare blankly at walls when touched by melancholy. They pluck and prod at their bodies, eat, sleep, play out their secret selves between chores. Each neighbor is a specimen of the abundance a city holds so tightly in its fists. I call them the architect, the widow, and the student. This, this uh, piece is, um, I guess it was conceived as an audio piece, but it exists on the web with photographs and images as well. Um, mm -hmm. But it seemed to be the primary thrust to me was was um, listening to this woman's um, uh, experiences of, um, I guess, the pandemic um, and through her um, walks through a... Uh, through through a city, mm -hmm. um, is um, was making a piece conceived for audio. Was that 
something that you've done many times before or was that a new experience or it was a new experience for me um i was quite convinced that the subject matter would be the best approach um through an audio experience um myself i uh i listened to a lot of fiction via podcasts during the po- uh, the pandemic and i felt there was a certain quality to getting out of your house and then walking around and sort of feeling connected with others but just by viewing you know their presence around um so i i, I took all that in and i i thought it was a really good medium to convey in- intimacy but also um a sense of isolation in that everything is in your head and most of my writing is a monologue so it it would literally put this woman's voice close to your head you know by having it in an audio form so i was investigating you know the potential of this of of audio to tell stories um and the, of course over time it evolved to also incorporate a visual element more so to serve as a way to, uh, way to reduce distraction because i did find that if you're sitting in one spot and you're listening to this your eye needs to be parked on something and so that's how the visuals came as an afterthought but yes um i was mostly um looking to explore the qualities of sound uh and what audio can bring to this experience um and so so the you were you started the writing i guess as and then did you um did, did you um let me, i'm going to begin did the writing begin before you had this conception of of hearing it in this form yes the writing began i i have a writing practice so i started writing it as a short story and then i was curious about what it how can i make it easier for somebody to experience it and i felt that putting it in a podcast or um, radio drama form might be an interesting way to um, bring people into the story and actually feel the emotional sort of range of what she goes through yeah and and um who is the person speaking who's who is that voice that's um that, that character to you, how do you mm-hmm. imagine and visualize that that voice? The voice, actually, I've tried, in my own notes, I had um, a character profile for her. It's definitely a woman. I was uh, interested in, in playing with this idea of, you know, what is the least threatening unit member of our society to have look in on you? And I think a woman or child is probably least um threatening than like a man watching you through a window so i definitely was was willing to explore and also as an as a as a as a female myself i felt like i could go deeper into the character and describe her state of mind um by by making this character a woman but aside from that the protagonist's age and various other sort of markers of how she might appear or act in the real world is kept ambiguous because um I just wanted her to be sort of a hollow container for things we feel. So I want want people to identify with her um, and the sort of isolation and desperation she feels through online contact. But at the same time, at some point in the story, she starts to also become sort of the voice of surveillance. And I wanted to play with how to make her sound 
um, like a real person, but also almost on the edge of somebody like Alexa, who is like sort of narrating to you um, her experience and what is that voice like. So sh she has a very um, uh, amorphous form in my head and I kept it like that throughout the writing process, trying not to tie her down. And even in the casting of um, the voice, uh, the voiceover uh, talent, I, I was, you know, I worked with Lenny Parker, who who's uh, narrated this, uh, um, and we tried to come up with a proper tone that would actually render her age or potentially any other markers a bit um, difficult to grasp. And I hope that that's what comes across. But that's we worked a, a few sessions with that. Um, but, <clears throat> but she's also um, has a job in surveillance. Is that right? Yeah. Um, so how I would say maybe you could tell us a bit about the her kind of the there's an online surveillance aspect, but there's also her physically walking about. Yeah. So um, looking in I on needed, people. <laughs> yeah. Um, I needed to make the character, you know, make it possible that the character would find this morally questionable activity um, somewhat uh, justifiable. And so what I thought would be interesting is to have somebody who in their day job is already engaging and it's not surveillance so much as probably market research or user experience. Like it's one of those jobs that really focus on tailoring people's online experience by studying how they interact with technology and then, you know, do the AB testing and, and eventually um, uh, calibrate the technology to work frictionlessly and so that's her day job without actually defining what it is it's something involving uh, watching people's interactions online and so knowing that she does this in her day job it's very easy for somebody to then believe that in the state of isolation when she's bored or maybe needing contact she walks around trying to produce profiles and user personas of people around her uh, and thinks it's a it's a science that can be sort of you know with enough data, you can hone in on on the specifics of a person. So this is her core belief, and we see how that gets updated and changed as she goes more and more through the story. But that's the that's sort of the the premise I wanted to set up for her to embark on this on this misadventure, I suppose. How is um writing for the for an auditory format different than than if you were writing for print or, or other media yeah i found i i had to do many um edits so i wrote it as a short story and then i had to rewrite it um, as an audio experience uh, mostly paying more attention to the rhythm of the sentences and I also wanted to make it more staccato. So if you notice, the sentences are very short. Uh, often I would punctuate or put a period where it, I could have gone on to join two, two phrases. I always opted to make it a little bit more um, short and concise. And it also sort of helped um, paint this persona of somebody who is very rational and and maybe mimic how technologies talk to us. Um, so that was in, in terms of like laying down the text. In terms of the sound experience, I really 
yeah, we had to go through another process of edits after the sound designer worked on it because some of the things were seeming very obvious and we had to really find sound effects that were not illustrating what was written in text and vice versa. So there's this sense of the a painting of the background picture with the score without having to use the words to say it concurrently. So yeah, through a lot of editing, I think I managed to get to a point where it was, you know, it was crystallized, but also um, allowed space for people to imagine her world and her space and her her instincts. And also by sound, you were also including the music? Yes, mm-hmm. yeah, the score, yeah. Um, which has, a to me, a, is um, more of a presence than functional sound does in the piece mm-hmm. um, and and seems to provide a, um, I guess you could say, a mental space in which the writing sits on, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, were there, were there um, different approaches or directions that you discussed with, with your collaborator? Um, yeah, um, well, I come from a background of architecture, actually. So no matter what I tend to do in my curatorial work or writing, I always have this sense of what is the space I'm bringing people into. And so when Julia uh, came on board, she she already came from a sound design background. So I really leaned on her to understand how we can make this space and bring someone into this space. Um, and the, deci- the decision to, um, to record it in a binaural um uh, recording format was also something that came through some of my residencies uh, independently. But when, uh, uh, you know, when my sound designer heard about it, she was very on board with bringing that component of dimensionality as well into the spa- uh, into the piece. In terms of my direction for her, it was mostly to say that, you know, I discussed scenes with her and, and tried to figure out um how we could paint the right emotion and i had I, I think i recall making a very detailed spreadsheet actually with each scene and and the kind of emotion that was there and i also maybe included some keywords as to what might be within the text uh what needed to come to the surface without actually explicitly representing it in sound and so that i think form the basis of our communication. And often I would just give her this, these notes and she would run off and do a couple, you know, like I say six or seven scenes and come back and we would talk about them and what works, what doesn't work and fine tune. So it was, yeah, there was direction on paper, but I, I think most of what you hear is really her brilliant work of um, bringing that text to life. And uh, you mentioned your background in architecture and I kind of see uh, that's mm-hmm. an interesting um, element of your background because, in a way, the her moving through this the, the the city and and considering how almost the kind of the, the design of people's homes and the design of of um, the environment around her and the design of technology and all these things it seems to be colored by you know that type of perspective. I don't know if architecture is your professional world and writing is your creative world and they're usually separate, but 
does this piece bring them together in any way? Oh yes, yeah. Um, I my central question in this piece is really why is it why does it give us pause when we think of someone watching us through a window and invading our privacy in that way, versus the everyday surveillance that's happening by you know tech multi you know the uh, tech conglomerates um, um, into our daily lives and into our every action. Uh, to me. Uh, Aside from the physical and virtual difference between the two, it's very much a similar <laughs> experience. But somehow, uh, the way we embody it, uh, if there was somebody at my window, I would feel physically, um, like I would have a visceral reaction to it. And I was mostly investigating why it is that we accept this subtle violation of privacy online. You know, what is it about the virtual world that's different from the physical world. And so there is the sense of, you know, the window as a screen and does it as an architectural element, it's meant to screen us and, and protect us, but also it's the only element on the facade that would expose us as well. And, and I'm playing a little bit with these ideas of, you know, what is it like to be connected with your neighbors? Is it mere proximity? Is it, knowing or being able to see them or is it actually having a deep relationship with them and where are we on that spectrum as a society the next morning i roll over and look up dream interpretation to find myself in bed with carl jung smoking his pipe he coined the term collective unconscious describing in effect an ancient cloud service for humanity how else could intuitions be transmitted over generations? We run dreams to collate inputs, to project onto ancestral imprints, and return to factory settings. In turn, they mark us with specks from the lives of others. Our desires, fed by these ephemeral membranes, that are designed to escape surveillance. Heck, they even escape reason. I imagine that monster bubble toiling over sleeping bodies around the world. A humble custodian vacuuming scraps of code we've iterated with wetware inside our bodies. My paper tongue sends me teetering into the kitchen. Once there, I squint at pixelated backsplash. The tube light buzzes in its inhumane tone over my resting hand. It is all veins and discoloration in sterile lighting. I've been meaning to install a dimmer. The repair never makes it to the top of my to-dos because I can always escape the prick of clarity. So I flee once again to set down my glass in the darkened bedroom lying down to dome palms over my eyes. If anyone finds out what I'm doing, they'd be sickened. Pleasure has a way of taking over when I stop to consider what I'm doing. It calls up intricate details from their lives and busies me in solving my pet puzzle. There are no more walls to rest on after the hack. I submerge on command, floating among their delicate shapes, 
My refuge from judgment comes in the form of a girl who once towered over splendid creatures. I plunge to pull away from the shores, withholding, dizzing atop waves of gratification, and when they crash, I sail belly up in the sun. My adventures take on different hues, but they all end the same way. I emerge from the pool of water, quenched, a woman capable of dismantling obsession with excess. I weigh my bank account in the eyes of my younger self. This is what I want to do with my life. My compass swerves as I deliver fixes to minor irritations. Between clickbait and engagement metrics, there are buttons to distract and notifications to hook and capture. I see myself for what I truly am, a tentacle of an industry that drowns us in a soup of choices. I'm autonomous, set on paddling upstream, but I cannot slip or the tide may give me over to unwanted shores. I find peace in admitting that I solve nothing of great concern. Work to live, not live to work, as they say. We will all be replaced quite soon, they also say. The characters before me are trapped in the same orbit, each following the conventions of a product's life cycle. The student is at the stage before realizing her full potential. There is ample room for speculation, for growth and iteration. Her narrative is playful. It blooms within an evolving reality. The architect grapples with grief at the summit of performance. It is slippery at the top and change looms on the horizon. The only way forward is down. The widow? has lived through her glory. She carries on splintered and frail, her wisdom outsourced to new models as she cruises into the night, powered by nostalgia. We're all hitched to a seductive engine that drags us out of frame. Understanding my neighbors has morphed into a chore. It is akin to mapping smoke from an incense stick. My mind runs fractured deductions day in and day out. I recognize who they are when they find themselves alone, when associations are free, unencumbered by reason, but I cannot draft a precise persona for them because their nature unspools and knots in with mine. I root myself by coloring them with tropes peddled in books, ads, and films. All this does is generate absurd mashups that don't stand up to my own scrutiny. Next, I try penning odd, discreet gestures. Anything out of the ordinary. My cluttered notebook doesn't bring me any closer to forecasting their actions. I can hardly keep up with the influx of information. Each passing day, I grow shackled by the riddle I've invented, while they defy categorization. An algorithm would sift through their details in parallel. It would weigh each action, reaction, hesitation, and revulsion in seconds, sort strings of actions that paralyze me and lay out a telling narrative. 
I contemplate this with my insufficient processor as my forehead grows heavy. It rests on the window, clouding its flawless transparency. I pull back to face the oily stain of an animal. chest puffs out air to remind me that I exist, an accordion of flesh and bone with measurable volumes of air coming in and out, almost in, almost out. Sinuous motions of my body butt up against the clicks set off by my fingertips. There is no almost between zero and one, but waves and clicks coexist somehow, fusing skin and machine my choices and those of others like me. Shadows skirt the luminescent wells I lap from. Still, I keep attempting the tightrope of objectivity, toppling again and again as the mechanical gaze shudders through me. My heart sputters to data coursing in. I creep through the digital refuse, recognizing the widow's fear of the virus, the student's reflex to send an emoji, the architect's frustration with exercising. A strange affinity has opened its umbrella over us, cooling the sun of rationality. The neighbors have become my phantom limbs, foreign yet integral. Detached sights of my emotional terrain. I wish I could twist a dial to kill my empathy. Such features are out of reach for creatures of imperfect code. So I dive into the rapids of incoming data to escape this shortcoming, mixing tears with the gush. Taken the hypnotic net suspended around us, savoring the underwater dance, powered by its resting potential. It could tighten at any time, lumping us all into a flailing, opaque mass. My fingers jitter as the widow passes me on the street. She is far down the block by the time I permit myself to give her a nod. I'm forced to walk on, bruised with yearning. Turns out, there's a shelf life to nuzzling in the details of others. I hadn't realized as a child that ambient intimacy eventually reveals sores you carry alone. The osmosis between my neighbors and my screens has cut through glass and concrete. Yet, an urge to connect keeps tugging at me from deep within. I find myself in an interminable loop. Wake up, browse, chug data, and pass out. A circadian rhythm designed to erase time. It mutes my senses into accepting any combination of action and reward. The only people I interact with are delivery men. They show up at my door and smile on cue. The other day, I invited one in. I retreated to fetch my card, leaving him at the entrance. He clutched his sweater, scanning the post-its that dotted my flat. 
I tried making conversation when I got back, flirting and offering an explanation for the mess. He in turn fumbled through the transaction and raced down the hall. Last night, I dreamt that I drowned in familiar faces. My eyes darted wildly to spot a new face, but there were none. I searched and searched until I discovered that I was dead, trapped in a closed pond, surrounded by morsels regurgitated from memory. That generator prison produced enough despair to wake me. I sulked in daylight, watching strangers cross the street, little packages of hurt and drive, marching to their own agendas. I waved at one of them to check if reality was still on play. He stopped and waved back, a welcome sign that novelty had not yet been exercised. I step into slanted sunlight and crank the window open to hear the flourish of passing conversation. I imagine myself at Cafe Agora, quiet, but peppered in with others. Beings floating in and out of obscurity without the slightest idea how we came to be like this. Since then, my broken human logic has been restored. I let the rope slip and the analysis grow murky. My instinct to categorize fell away and my neighbors stayed raw. Perhaps they were incomprehensible. I unplugged the three screens later that day, but inadequacies still linger inside me and sting from time to time, especially when the routine checkbox pops up to confirm my condition. I am not a robot. That was an excerpt from The Tracker by Prachi Kandukar. This has been Making Waves. Thanks for listening. We'll join you one month from now.